Well, this morning we're starting a brand new series uh, that we are calling Foundation. First uh, Peter chapter three verse fifteen says, "Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have." You know, Christianity gives us a great hope in this life and in the next, but the hope that we have doesn't just exist in a vacuum. We don't have hope because Christianity makes us feel better. Uh, Our hope, the foundation of our hope is not that we can just become better people. Uh, Our hope has a sure foundation. And the foundation is what we believe as Christians. What we believe about who we are and who God is. What sin is and what salvation is. These beliefs form the foundation of the Christian faith. And so over the next several weeks, as we begin the summer, we're going to explore the foundational beliefs of Christianity based on our belief statement as a church. Now, we aren't so cocky to think that our belief statement here at Emmaus Road is the best around or sums up all the tenets of the Christian faith. Our belief statement, though, is right in line with historical Christianity. Uh, We've taken those historical foundational beliefs and communicated them in our own words. And uh, that's going to form the foundation and the structure for our series together. So I encourage you to go ahead and read our statement of belief. It's available on our website uh, to remind ourselves what we believe as a community. But I want to begin this morning by reading the very first thing that our statement of belief says, which is this. We believe God is creator of the universe, and he exists as Trinity in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three have eternally existed together and are co-equal with one another. For a few minutes together, I want to explore what the Bible has to say about what we believe about God. And for this exploration, we will begin in the beginning, in in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 states, In the beginning, God. I think it's really important to point out that the Bible does not set out or, or seek to try to prove the existence of God. The Bible assumes the existence of God. In the beginning, God was there. In the beginning, God. And so the Bible isn't trying to set out an argument for the existence of God, but rather assumes that he not only exists, but is eternal and always there. But this isn't what a lot of people in our culture believe. This belief called atheism, which is the belief that God does not exist, is really pretty popular in our culture. And so for a few moments this morning, I want to uh, explore this idea of atheism and why it simply cannot be true. The Bible says that God is there at the beginning. Well, many believe that our world and our universe began with a a big bang. That is to say that the big bang theory is not just a popular show on television. It is a scientific belief that states that our entire universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy that came from an infinitely small point. Scientists claim that this just happened, that the energy in that small point became too much to handle, and so it burst out into what eventually became our world and our universe. 
Well, the only problem with that is that everything in our universe is contingent. That is to say that it is dependent on a force outside of itself. Everything in our universe is contingent on something else. For a plant to grow, it must have water. Water comes when it rains. Rain is caused by the moisture in a cloud combining to form large drops that becomes too heavy and that they are falling at a rate that is faster than the cloud is rising. The cloud itself is formed by condensed water or ice. Water is formed by two parts oxygen and one part, uh, two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. These atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons, and on and on it goes. You see, everything in our world is contingent upon something else. And so it would stand to reason then that a universe that is contingent on outside forces, would have had to begin from something outside of itself, namely God. And I want to say also this morning that uh, atheism itself is actually a leap of faith. You see, lots of secular young people, many young people have a very strong moral conviction, but they hold those moral convictions without any true foundation. Uh, Imagine this conversation between a young couple and a pastor. The young couple is looking for spiritual direction and uncertain that God even exists, says to the pastor, you know, we don't believe in, in much of anything. Well, the pastor responds by saying, well, tell me about something that you feel is very, very morally wrong. Well, the woman speaks up and and says uh, very strongly and with lots of conviction that any practice that marginalizes women is morally wrong. Well, the pastor says, well, I agree with you fully. Uh, You're right. Anything that marginalizes women is wrong because God made all human beings. They bear his image and are inherently valuable as creations of God. But why do you believe that it is wrong? Well, the woman says that, Women are humans, and humans have rights, and it is wrong to trample on someone else's inherent rights. And the pastor simply says, well, how do you know that? Well, the woman says, everyone knows that it is wrong to violate someone's rights. The pastor responds, actually, everyone does not know that. That is just a Western view of human rights. Imagine if someone from the Eastern part of our world would say to you, everyone knows that women are inferior. For that is the assumption around many parts of the world. Well, you would say, well, that's not true. That's just an assertion. And when you say that, you would in fact be right. So let's begin again. If there is no God and we are just evolved from animals, why would it be wrong to trample on someone's rights? Well, at this point, the husband, the man speaks up and he says, well, animals have rights too. Even though we are the bigger brain species. The pastor says, well, do you hold animals guilty for violating the rights of other animals if the stronger one ate the weaker one? Well, no, the man responds. And so you only hold humans guilty if they trample on the weak. The man responds, yes. Well, why the double standard? Why do you insist that humans are different from animals and not allowed to act in ways that were natural, like for the rest of the animal world? Why do you insist that humans have unique individual dignity and worth. At this point, the woman says, well, I don't know. That's just the way it is. You see, this couple held a moral belief that pointed them right to the Christian God, the God of the Bible, and yet by faith, they refused to believe in him, or by lack of faith. 
So when it comes to atheism, I think it's that we have to, under, when we have to understand that there really is no airtight proof of God. Every argument has a rational escape. There is always some way to escape any argument for the existence of God. But the weight of all the clues that we have, uh, the, the morality, uh, the beauty of our universe, all of these things are clues that point us to God. And their weight together is an overwhelming argument that convinces us that in fact God exists. And as I said at the very beginning, the Bible doesn't seek to tell us that God exists. It assumes that he does. And so the very first thing that we need to know about God and who God is is that God is eternal. The in the beginning God. He always has been and he always will be. He truly is the beginning and the end. He is there. So in the beginning, God. Well, as we move on in this creation poem that we find in Genesis chapter 1, we find that, that God creates the world that we see. And, and, and after everything, it says, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And in fact, the very summary of his creation after the sixth day, the Bible says that God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was Good, And so we have to understand, not only is God eternal, but also God is creator. God is creator. And so when we gather together in worship, we are worshiping our creator. That when we come into relationship with the God who loves us, that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, we're not just entering into a relationship with a generic God. We're, we're entering into a relationship with a God who knew your name, who formed you in your mother's womb, who is in fact creator And he has created our universe to stand in perfect balance. You know, for organic life to exist, there must be a whole system of constants that must be there. Constants like the gravitational pull, the nuclear forces, the speed of light. And all of these constants, there are 15, science says, constants in our world. And all of them must fall into a very very narrow range. If any of the 15 constants were to be off by just one part in a million, organic life could not exist in our world. And so God is, is creator, and he's a God of the details, and he has created this place specifically for us. God created, and it was good. You see, we believe that God is the creator of all that we see, of the universe. And he has instilled it with perfect balance for life. And he has crowned his creation with beauty. And he has filled it with majesty and wonder. This, of course, is why when people go to the mountains, they, they feel something. And, and not, it's not just the cool mountain breeze or the, or the smell of the fresh pine. When they go into the mountains, they feel something deep inside of them. Christians would obviously begin to identify this and say they feel closer to God in the mountains because they're, they're looking at the, the expanse of the creation that the Creator God has made for them. But unbelievers would often feel something very similar in the mountains, but they can't quite describe it. And what they are feeling in those moments is the presence of the creator God. And yet with all the beauty and the majesty and the glory that we find in our creation, we also see all kinds of things that are ugly and misordered and out of whack and evil. 
And I think it's important for us to understand when we look at the nature of who God is, God is eternal and God is creator. We have to begin to understand that everything that is evil is a perversion of what was once good. You see, God created and he called this world good. And yet there's all kinds of things in our world that we would not describe as good. We would describe them as blatantly evil. What evil does is not create. But what evil does is take something good and pervert it or twist it so that it becomes evil. And the good news of the gospel is that one day God will defeat all evil and restore things back to their beauty and their goodness. But that's for another week in our series. And so God is eternal, and God is creator. And then we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, just before God is, is getting ready to make Adam and Eve and create humans, he says this. He says, let us make man in our image. All of a sudden, we see this plural form of, of who God is. We're, we're talking about one God. God was there in the beginning. God is eternal, and he creates. And then right when he gets to the crown of his creation, human beings, he, begin, he says, let us make man in our image. And he, the Bible uses a plural form that is to point us to the truth that God exists as trinity. The, the belief in the Trinity is, is a way of saying that God exists, that there is, is one God, but he exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, when we think of the Trinity, we, we tend to think of the three persons of the Trinity in a hierarchy. That is to say that, that God is sort of the big guy at at the top. He's number one and he's mysterious and we don't really know him and we don't really know if we can know him. Uh, but then we have number two, Jesus, and he's really the star of the show. He's, he's the, the face of God. He's the one that makes God accessible, and we worship Jesus, and he died for us. And, and, and he's really the one that is most active in our faith, and the one that we talk about the most, and the one who gets the most press, sort of speak. And then we have number three, sort of at the bottom, we have the Holy Spirit who is also there. But we're not really sure what he does. I mean, sometimes he gets credit for all kinds of weird stuff, and, and uh, we're, we're just not sure. And he's, he's shrouded in all kinds of, of mystery. And we tend to think of, of this in hierarchy. God, number one. Jesus, number two. Holy Spirit, number three. But this is not at all what the Trinity is. This truth that, that there is one God that exists as three persons points us to the fact that God is relational. And so when we think about the three persons of the Trinity, this, this one God but, but three persons, we, we shouldn't think of it in terms of a hierarchy, a one, a two, and a three, but rather think of it as a continual circle where each person in the Trinity is each co-equal and co-eternal with one another. That is to say that, that God did not create Jesus when, when things fell apart in his creation. And, and God didn't just sort of come up with the idea of the Holy Spirit uh, or, or send the Holy Spirit. You see, what happens is Jesus is not created. Jesus is 
made flesh or he is made incarnate. He's incarnated. And the Holy Spirit is not sent but poured out among all the people. Both the Word of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit and God have all been there, co-equal, co-eternal. They were all there at creation. Let us together make man in our image. And so each person of the Godhead relates and is in relationship with the others. We see this, of course, throughout the Gospels while Jesus, the Son of God, goes to pray to the Father. We see this where the Holy Spirit is poured out among all people. Jesus says, I'm going to send you a helper, a counselor, and he's talking to us about the Holy Spirit. The Godhead is in perfect Trinitarian relationship with one another in order to teach us that God is deeply, deeply relational. And and out of this perfect relationship among the members of the Godhead came the desire to create a world that would share in that love and in that relationship. The reason God creates is because of love and a desire for relationship with you. Now this idea of the Trinity can be very difficult to understand and probably some of you are are lost at this point. One God, three persons, and and you're just trying to get a a handle on that. Well, there are some metaphors that that are helpful. Ultimately, all of them fall short, but but a couple of metaphors that I think could be helpful to think about this is, as as we've already talked about, is water. Water is one in essence, but has three distinct forms. As a liquid, it is water, the stuff that we drink and depend on. As a solid, it is ice. And as gas, it is steam. And so water, being one in essence, has a liquid form, a solid form, and a gas form. Same thing with an egg. An egg is is one in essence, but there are three parts of the egg, the shell, the white, and the yolk. And even though these metaphors can be helpful, and even though they at some point fall short of fully describing the Trinity, again, I want to to, uh, remind you that the point of the Trinity is that God is deeply relational. We bear his image, which means that we also are relational beings. That is to say, and and someone needs to hear this this morning, someone out there is trying to be the Lone Ranger, just trying to to do things on your own with your own resources and your own effort. You're seeking to do it all by yourself. But but the point that God exists as Trinity is to point us to the fact that this perfect relationship among the members of the Trinity flowed out into a created order that would invite others into that same love and relationship. The point is this, you can't Do it on your own. You do need other people. And I would just encourage you this morning to come to the point where you can admit, I need other people to come alongside of me in my faith, in my work, in my family life, in my illness, in my trouble, in my challenge. I cannot do it alone. And if you can get there, then you're in a perfect position for God to begin working in your life through other people. Because God is deeply relational. 
I wonder how many times we rob ourselves of God's work in our life because we won't invite other people along in the process. I wonder how many times we've been robbed of the profound work of God because we try to do things ourselves. Maybe we're embarrassed. Maybe we're ashamed. Maybe we're too prideful. But whatever it is, we close ourselves off to other people. All the while, God is willing to work through others in our lives because he himself is relational and we must be in relationship with other people. And so I would encourage you this morning to open yourselves up to others. And as others open themselves up to you to be kind and understanding of who God is and what he wants to do in our life. And so God is eternal. God is creator. God is trinity, which means he's relational. And then connected to the relational is that God is love. God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. As I've already stated, one of the questions that comes up a lot in, in circles of theology and philosophy is, if God knew that the creation was going to, to fall and sin, and, and that sin would separate us from God, then, then why would he create in the first place? And the, the argument that I have always found to be the most satisfactory is, is the fact that, that God is love, that God, as he exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in perfect relationship with one another, was so filled with love that it couldn't help but create to invite others into that same love. And so the Bible points that out to us, talking all the time about how God loves us. God's love is demonstrated to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Notice that it says God is love. It does not say that God is loving. To say that God is loving would be to define the God of the universe based on the attribute of love. And in Hollywood and books and all kinds of, of messages in our culture have, have robbed us of really understanding love. And so if we were to take our misunderstanding and cultural understanding of love and then define or apply that to God, we would have such a skewed view of who God is. Sometimes... We do this by reducing love to being nice. And so what happens is if that we perceive that God isn't nice, then we say he isn't loving. If, God, if, if we're going through a challenge or a difficulty or something is going on in our life and that tempts us to sort of churn our back at God or, or shake our fist at God, then, then sometimes we come to the untrue conclusion, well, God must not be loving because he sure doesn't seem nice. Well, let's not cheapen love to be the same thing as nice. You see, it's a, it's a terrible error to define God according to our cultural understandings of love. 
Because most of our cultural understandings of love are extremely selfish. And what we find in the Bible is that God is not selfish, but God continually gives of himself, giving even his only son for you and I. You see, it's important that the Bible says God is love and not God is loving. To say that God is loving is to take our cultural understanding of love and apply it to God. But to say that God is love is to define love by looking at God. You want to know what love is? Love is the triune God who existed in perfect communion with himself, creating the world and all that is in it and calling it good. But that creation rebelled against its creator. So he set in motion a plan to put his creation back to right and save the crown of his creation, us, those who were created in his image, from the certain destruction that their disobedience would lead to. He didn't need to do this. He didn't have to do this. He wanted to do this. Because God is love. God is eternal. God is creator. God is trinity, which means he's relational. And God is love. I don't know how you have viewed God up to this point in your life. And I don't know if you're here this morning and you're even to the point where you're questioning whether even God exists. But one thing that I hope for you and one thing that I pray for you is that you would not only come to know that God exists, but that you would come to know that the eternal creator God of the universe loves you. And we're going to talk about, over the next several weeks, all the things and all the reasons of how his love is poured out on us and why we need his love. But this morning, I pray that you might get just a taste, just a touch of who God is and his love for you. Now, before I pray, I want to mention that this morning, as you came in, you received a connection card. And on that connection card is some, are some next steps that we encourage you to take this week that we might be able to encourage you and that you might be able to grow in your faith. And one of the great ways to learn more about God is to study the names of God. Uh, God calls himself all kinds of different names uh, in the scripture, and it gives us a true picture of his character and who he is. And so if that's you this morning, I would encourage you in just a few moments as you're instructed, when you're instructed to fill out your connection cards, to to take that out and check that box that says, I want to study the names of God. And if you check that box, you'll get an email from me early this week 
that will give you uh, a study guide that lists all the names of God so that you can uh, meditate on those, pray through those, worship God according to his names, and it'll be an aid to you to help you grow in your faith. But I also believe that God has spoken to many of you sort of uniquely this morning and that there's a particular next step that he's calling you to do of how this sermon challenged you or spoke to you or has uh, drawn you into a, a particular action. And so we have some blanks there for you to write down some of your own next steps. And again, we want to follow up with you and be an encouragement to you in those. And so in just a few moments, someone will come up and we'll invite you to fill those out. Uh, But let me pray to close our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. And we're thankful, God, that you love us so deeply. I pray that in these closing moments of the service, that each and every one of us would um, feel your love in a way that is brand new, in a way that we have never before. And and Lord, if there's anyone out there that does not know you, uh, that has not accepted your love for them in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection, I pray, Lord, that this morning you would invite them in, uh, that your Holy Spirit would speak to them and draw them in to faith in you, the creator God who loves us. And we are so thankful, God, for this time together. Uh, Bless us and anoint this time together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.